0: This is series three of Brave New Girl podcast, and I'm Lou Hamilton, author and illustrator of Brave New Girl, how to be fearless. And I welcome you to the stories of real life Brave New Girls, who are creatives, founders, campaigners, health practitioners, and thought leaders who are making a positive impact in the world. This week's guest is chartered psychologist and practitioner, Dr. Martha deros Calado, who specializes in working with families to overcome difficulties and reach their preferred futures. Her particular expertise is in working in paediatrics with children living with physical health conditions that are life-limiting and life-shortening. But the lessons we learn from her are relevant for all of us. Welcome, Dr. Martha, to Brave New Girl podcast. (laughs) Hey, Martha, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, yes. I've just had a big delivery of nine canvases, which are four foot by four foot, so I've got a busy week ahead.
1: Wow.
0: Okay. Yeah, so this is like a, a nice little breather before the chaos starts. <gasps> sounds really exciting. Yeah, yeah it is. So I'm really pleased to have you here. I'm interested to know from your experience and and your work, I wonder how the pandemic has been for the families that you've been working with and also in the light of what happened with Sarah Everard and the reclaimed streets. You know, I saw on your Instagram that you talked about how we raise our boys in relationship to that. So there's a sort of two-part question really. Um, But if we start with how you think that families have been affected, or how you've seen them being affected during this time?
1: Yeah, I think all families are different, so the pandemic has had very unique effects depending on how families are and how well they've been functioning through lockdown. So I think some families have had a much harder time than others. Some families have had more bereavements and lots of grief. Um, loads of teenagers have felt And children have felt really isolated from like, you know, social interaction, which for children and teenagers is so critical. And it's been really hard. I think for us adults, it's been really hard as well. But I think for children, a week is a lot longer than it is to an adult. Um, And until children are about eight or nine, they have no concept of time. So it's four months and longer than that, really. I think of it more as a year. I know we had a bit of a break last summer, but it feels like so long ago, doesn't it? So some of the things that children and young people have talked to me about are things like anxiety, um, both during lockdown, but now kind of reclaiming life, finding it quite difficult to go to school, for example. Just everyday activities have suddenly started to feel really difficult and scary lots of little ones have been told that it's safe to be at home so now they're really confused about why it's safe to be at school Um, it's just been a really challenging time i think and just people missing and losing support networks around them so parents being completely depleted um, you know it's an impossible task to have to work and homeschool and parent um, and, and, and it's just not possible. So I think the task has been an impossible one that I feel now that we're coming out of lockdown a little bit, lots of people feel guilt or regret or like they failed in some way. And I just feel we've all been surviving as best we can. And kind of the expectations that we were kind of set from the powers that be that we could just manage it and like kids would just school online is crazy. You know, like it's so unrealistic. And I know people have been calling it homeschooling, but I was calling it emergency schooling because it is like learning during an emergency. And on top of all those emotions that I was talking about, you know, anxiety and loss of socializing, all of that, children's brains can't, learn and develop and grow within those contexts so it's just been so difficult and for me it's still we still have the legacy of it like it's not gone if that makes any sense like we're still kind of I think there's lots of busyness but actually our minds and our bodies are moving much much slower we're not we're not back You know, it's not normal again, and I think it's it's children's. You can see it in children's behaviours and how they're responding to the outside world. That it doesn't feel normal. That things are not quite right yet.
0: That's interesting because um, I had an invitation to go out into town for a you know for a night out, and uh, you know when we can at the end of May. And I'm quite an introvert, so I I suddenly I just thought actually I just I don't feel ready for that yet. I I actually need more time. And so I can imagine that, that children and, you know, other people who might be more introverted find this sort of transition back into what we're hoping is going to be normal life, that we need we need the time to kind of adjust again backwards. Absolutely. And I actually think
1: I can only talk about myself and the people around me that I know, but I think the idea of being more introverted like I think lots of people feel that at the moment there's lots of excitement about seeing others but once we do we feel really exhausted like in a way that isn't the way that we normally would have been it's just the effort of socializing and just as exciting as it is, all those emotions, they all kind of bubble up to the surface when we see people again, excitement, but also sadness that we've missed out on seeing you, that we've missed special moments together. There's a lot of loss and grief that's kind of bubbling up to the surface. And then when we come home, it just feels like exhausting, like it's just been so intense. Um, So I can, that really resonates for me. I can really connect with that idea of feeling introverted because. I feel that at the
0: moment, like I need a bit of downtime. And so when you're helping children and families, well, I mean, it's everyone really, isn't it? Children, families, adults, all of us, you know, (laughs) we've all been through this. So how are you helping to guide people at, at any age through what seems like a sort of very well, you know, we've been hit by a series of tragedies in a way, haven't we? And, and trauma. And so therefore emerging from trauma, kind of shaken, but being expected to sort of function normally and function, you know, almost as we were beforehand. How do you sort of guide people through that? What are the tools that people can sort of apply for themselves to help them?
1: So I do a lot of family therapy and I use models such as narrative therapy. So one of the things that I try and do with children and families is this is what they're bringing and at the moment, this is coming along with other things that they might want to focus on or work on, but it's all part of the story. It is about kind of writing a story and thinking about your family, unique story and What you've learnt from being all of you together, what you've got out of it. So, it's you know, lockdown has brought a lot of grief and loss and pain and you know, hardship. But there is another side to that story as well. Lots of people talk about feeling closer together as a family, of being able to witness their children developing or learning or doing in ways that they've never done before. So, it's been like a really big opportunity. I've talked to lots of dads who have just started to parent in a way that they've never done before because they were usually at work. And now they were like working from home, but they've still been able to witness moments, family moments that weren't there before. So for me, there's something about punctuating that time. And like you're saying about trauma, when you think about trauma, it's also about not being able to integrate the emotion with the experience so when we're able to pull those two things together into a story like a family narrative of this is what happened to us it can be really helpful in like bringing everyone together and if you've got little children even older to even us as adults sometimes it's not enough just in words so sometimes the story might be through kind of art or creating something or you know making like a memento a family memento of this time together. So lots of people are gone from lots of walks. So I've talked about people kind of taking lots of photos of things that they've seen or done together and making like a big memento of, you know, this is our lockdown time. Children who've done loads and loads of drawing drawings, maybe they can have like a little storybook of all the artwork that's come out of it, what it means to them, what it means for the parents to have joined in with it. It's that kind of thing. It has to have like a felt sense of this is us. But also this is us during this moment in time. I know lots of teenagers have kept kind of journals and things like that. And some of them might not want to share all of that with their parents, but they want to share maybe a few words or, you know, put something up that kind of is like, this is what I did over this time. I think that can be really powerful. It doesn't take away the experience of hardship. You know, it doesn't take away the trauma I think if we're thinking about trauma and how you work through that that is a process a really long process that is often done in a relationship with a safe other so parents families who come to me to think about those things it's about kind of holding them and holding the experiences that they've had I like the the word you use about guiding them but it's about guiding them in the direction they want to take and processing things because when something's felt traumatic has been traumatic and I think all of us have felt that over lockdown sometimes you can only revisit it very gently very slowly so you might only be able to peek in for a little bit you might not be able to fully open everything up because that's too scary so you can only kind of look a little bit and I think for those families and those children who have experienced grief over lockdown it's been a lot harder than in normal everyday life before COVID because they haven't had opportunities to remember, to grieve, to celebrate the life of another. You know, funerals weren't allowed. There's so many things that have been lost and missed. And I have spoken to families who, it, you know, children have lost a very close family member. That might be a parent or a grandparent. And it's been it's felt like an extra tragedy, because those moments of remembering and being present with each other haven't been possible. So I think trauma is a process and so, you know some of the strategies I shared at the beginning, they're like little things that we can all do and think about together. But I think if you as a family have experienced trauma in a way that is affecting your everyday, then it is about seeking support and finding somebody that you can talk to. It can really guide you through that.
0: I think that's a really good point, you know, I, either or both having somebody outside that can support, but also creating those mementos. You know, it might be a scrapbook or a photo book or a journal or a picture that everyone's contributed to. And I think that that sort of honors the experience of the family or the individuals because we're, you know, everyone I've spoken to on the podcast or outside of it the there's a there's a sense that well I haven't I haven't struggled as as bad as the next person no matter what their experience is but there's there it feels like there's a sort of self-imposed hierarchy of well you know we haven't had it so bad as the next person so we shouldn't really be complaining or or talking about our own uh, discomfort or or unhappiness around the things that have happened, or we don't want to talk about the good things that have happened because other people have really suffered. And so giving yourself the permission to create something that allows you to explore those feelings and to celebrate where where possible and to express the the painful parts too. kind of completely separate there's no comparison is there to other people this is this is your journey this is your experience and whatever that was you can rightfully own it in some way or form
1: absolutely and it's about like a comparison can be so challenging and it can really kind of invalidate us in terms of our experiences. But for me, I take a very much both and approach. So things have been really hard and there might have been something really positive from it. And it's about that. It's like that experience or practice of gratitude, which is also about and, which doesn't diminish how hard things have been or it doesn't diminish how hard something might have been to somebody else. But you can have both. It can be both kind of painful and actually family quality family time's been great. You know, like it can be both of those. And I know for lots of mothers, it's been really difficult and they felt more supported by their partners, for example. So it's, it's both of those things. It's not one or the other. It's not exclusive, if that makes sense. You can have both as part of your experience.
0: And so then, so we have the sort of internal and and family and relationship um, and and also work um, issues that we've all had to deal with. And then we've had the external things that have come to us from, through the news, through the television, through what's happening um, in the world as a whole. And so sort of going back to the case of Sarah Everard, you know, that came in at a time when we're all really kind of struggling, but raised issues that are, are really long-term. You know, the, the fact that we feel still that we we have to reclaim the streets so that we can feel safe as women and girls. And so the point of, of you know, our, that when we're raising our sons, how do we raise them so that women and girls feel safe? And and is that, you know, the, because the emphasis has always been on women and girls' making themselves feel safe um Mm. and you know addressing appropriate you know that it was the kind of things that you know judges judges would say oh well she had a short skirt on you know that it falsely puts the, the the responsibility on to to the women and girls and so somehow kind of allowing a way of of everybody feeling ownership of this as a problem and it starts when when they're young so as a psychologist of, you know, of, of children, how how do you help parents sort of negotiate that and, and help them sort of through raising both girls and boys, but but much more equally than it, it used to be?
1: Yeah, this is such a huge topic. and It's really, really layered for me. And I think like the way I've talked about it, try and talk about it is to just be direct with parents because that like you were saying, I'm a child psychologist, I do family therapy. They're the people I feel I can influence. But for me, like there's, there's layers, right? And for me, it starts with our society, like it starts really high up before it kind of trickles down. But I think, yes, I think it does start at home with how we raise our children and how we talk about these things. I think what, what you started talking about is really key, which is, In my words, kind of the narrative around, you know, little girls and little boys. So for me, it's really that binary conversation about little girls and what they're supposed to be and look like and do, and little boys, what they're supposed to be and look like and do, is really flawed. And I really think it's harmful. And that's not just in our homes, like that doesn't, you know, that comes from society. There are so many messages that we we see every day and we don't even question them because they've become normal. And they are so normal that nobody, you know, nobody stops and really thinks about it. But when we do, it suddenly might start to open up some questions, which is what I talk about, like trying to hold onto our curiosity. So you know, ideas around, I mean I can use any form of example, like stereotypes, like things about what little boys and little girls wear. It's so obvious when you go into a shop about the clothing, the the words. So loads of little girls' tops will say things like be nice, sunshine, love, unicorns, fairies, hearts, and all the boys' clothes will say things like um monster. Superhero. Superhero. Yeah, exactly. Naughty, so I've seen that in lots of little boys' talks. And they'll have things like, hey, Dougie, and Toy Story. And, you know, and the little girls will have all the Frozen stuff and Moana. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Like, if we just buy clothes for our kids, but we don't really think about it. But, you know, it's not even about blue and pink for me anymore. You know, everybody knows about that. You know, colours are non-gendered. Gender is also a construct, which I talk a lot about, like biological sex does not define gender. So this idea that little boys are superheroes and little girls are nice and have rainbows and unicorns is so old fashioned. And for me, it's really at odds with what we're trying to do. Like, you know, the Sarah Everard, I think what that opened up was an old kind of worms that's always been here which is about women saying we don't feel safe like there are lots of times when we walk home and it's happened to all of us all of us um or we're on a bus or we're on public or we're running and you know we get harassed and it makes us feel unsafe because in that moment we're in a vulnerable position that's not okay but we talk about it and then it kind of passes by and then something else happens you know Sarah Everard somebody else will die you know There's constant little trickles of this information, but I feel like this is different at the moment and there might be something about lockdown that has kind of, I don't know, put a fire out there in our society because we've been locked in and then when something like this happens, it's kind of like felt louder and more like active, I feel like people have talked about an awakening and it's not like none of us knew about this, it's just that We've all suddenly said, no, stop. Now we really need to do something. I think lockdown may have done something like that to us. We'd be doing so little that when something like this or Black Lives Matter happens, we all kind of get activated, I think.
0: Also, I think this is the first time ever that the whole world has felt unsafe. Yes. So suddenly everyone gets what it feels like on a daily basis. To be unsafe walking down the street, because you know we've been feeling that because a virus can get us. But as women and and girls, we've been feeling that, and and you know some men that have that's they've experienced that too, that sense of sort of really feeling vulnerable and unsafe. So maybe that's part of the reason why everyone has has sort of galvanised around.
1: Yeah, this. that's a very good point. I think that's very likely as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the things with the narrative is that I've been thinking about this more and more recently, but as young girls, young women, particularly now, so I have a little daughter, I've become really aware of messages that are a bit more empowering, you know, like gender equality, gender, the gender pay gap, even like films. You know, I kind of mentioned Moana, Frozen, Um, Disney has a new one called Raya, which is all about like, you know, a young girl and it's got nothing to do with finding a prince or anything. It's about like, she's strong and she's a warrior and, you know, she befriends a dragon, all these amazing things that you think, yes, I didn't get these kind of role models. And I think as adults, what, one of the things we forget is, and I think it's because I'm a psychologist to me, I'm very aware of it. So we, as humans, we only learn what we experience. And for little ones, even though these things are films, stories and books, you know, pictures, animations, they are experiences. And although it feels like, oh, it's just for fun, like, you know, my child knows that, you know, Moana isn't going to walk down the street. It doesn't matter. The kind of what she's hearing, what she's learning becomes an experience about what is possible for little girls to do, what is possible for little girls to be. Now, having said that, I think one of the things that does need to shift, and as parents, we can start that in our own homes, is that little boys don't have this. Little boys have a very, very narrow story, narrative, about who they can be. So even in these stories, like Frozen, the prince gets punched in the face. I mean, you know, if we swap that over, I think there'd be rage if there was like, you know, somebody slapped Anna in the face, like in Frozen. We'd be like, oh my God, you can't do that. You can't do that in a cartoon. But why is it okay for a woman to do that to a man? Because that just means to me, like, we're we're just making the narrative, you know, the same, but the other way around. Swapping it over, yeah. That's not okay. Mm. Same with Moana. I love Moana. But if we look at the male characters in Moana, There's only two kind of characters, a king who is really strong and powerful and Maui who's a semi-god. Like what kind of narrative are we putting into little boys? Like it's a great story of adventure and empowering for females but where are the men? Why are there no stories of boys who are sensitive, who are caring, who are not big and strong and semi-godlike or or get punched in the face. It's
0: not one or the other. Yeah, we've we've fought a long time for in in film for for female roles to be nuanced. You know, not just strong, not just weak, not just this, but all of the things, all of the things that we that make us human. And I think now that needs to be in the male characters too. You know, that that it isn't just the typical characters, but actually much more nuanced and realistic.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is one of the problems, I think, at the moment, because when the Sarah Everard stuff came out, so many men came out and said, it's not all men. And I think I found that really difficult. And I know lots of women found that difficult too. Because of course, like, we're not all man haters. You know, I have so many men in my life that I love. This is not what this is about. But as soon as men... Don't step up and go, I am on your side, this isn't okay. As long as men still take it as banter to kind of talk about women's bodies in objectifying ways, like in the pub or in a group, or isn't it funny, I did this, or, you know, I saw up her skirt, that's not funny. Or even jokes, you know, really sexist jokes. As long as men still laugh about that, it's not all men who tell the joke, but while they're all not saying anything. It is all of them just standing, saying it's okay for you to say this and do this. And for me, it does start there. Of course, murder is a different thing, but it starts there because for me, it starts with compassion, empathy, respect. These are values that all the parents I work with want to teach their children. They want to teach them self-confidence. They want to teach them empathy. You know, so many parents talk about the importance of their child being kind. But you can't be kind if you just stand by and hear these stories and do nothing. So for me, it starts at home in lots of little steps. So one step, it's about being really aware of these messages that we're just absorbing from society without thinking, because they're automatic. Can we stop and go, wait a minute, what are these messages that my little boy is getting, my little girl is, mes- is getting? If I don't like it, can I question it? Can you like pause a film and go, what do you think of Maui? Because he's really strong. What do you th- you know, can you question? Can you talk about it? It's not just about Moana, there's other characters. So open up the conversation, help your child become a critical thinker, help them start to go, oh yeah, that's not right. Like, he doesn't cry. He actually avoids crying in the film. Why is that? Why is it not okay for big men to cry? Why is it not okay for boys to cry? For me, this is really key because that's where it starts, when we help our children question what they're experiencing. And on top of that, as parents, I think we also have a duty to role model the things we want to see. So for me, men... Are a huge part of the solution. And of course, that we can talk about consent, but I'm not even talking about that yet, because for me, these are all the kind of building blocks of getting to consent. It's so much easier to get there when you have this. So for me, it's about men being able to show all forms of emotion, not just anger and strength, you know, sadness, like how many children have seen their dads cry. I've never seen my dad cry. And my grandparents, you know, his parents have died. And never, he's never shed a tear. And to me, that's not rare. Because if I ask loads of friends, boys, you know, men or women, they they will say a similar thing. Yeah, my dad's never really shed a tear. Why not? Because, like, I cry. (laughs) My husband cries. It's a human response. I'm not saying my husband cries easily. He doesn't. He finds it really hard. And the reason for that is he was never really allowed to. Like, you know, those kind of narratives, little boy, you know, big boys don't cry. They stick. They really do stick. And when you don't have a role model, again, you learn what you experience, like your brain learns what the experience is. When you don't see men who show emotion, who show vulnerability, who show fear, who are able to just say, I'm really sad, like that film's made me sad or sad. I'm really upset because of X, Y, and Z. When that doesn't happen, little boys just think it's women. Women cry, but men don't. And that means I, as I get older, I can't do that either. That's not acceptable. We need to think about this in our own homes and do like tiny steps towards those building blocks. And I think men are a huge part of this solution. It's It's not just emotion. It's also about saying, Yes, boys can wear accessories on their hair. Yes, they can wear mascara. Yes, they can dance. No, they don't just have to play rugby and football. Like, these are not just guy sports. You know, there are ice skaters who are men. There are gymnasts who are men. There are amazing dancers who are men. Why don't we open up these opportunities, possibilities to all our children? There's no Girl sport, boy sport, you know, girl colour, boy colour, there isn't. But until we don't just open it up to girls, you know, like more and more girls are playing football, more and more girls are playing rugby. But where are the boy ballerinas? Well, where are they going? Where are the boy like doing lots of drama?
0: Yeah, I really like how you talk about working with values, because when you have those high values and it, they're sort of ingrained from a very young age... Then there's no room for judgment and being unkind and pointing the finger if one or other sex does something that's you know perceived by society to be different. Um, you, when you when you've really installed those values, that works across everything, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I wonder how did you you know what's your narrative? How did you become? Why did you become a, a child psychologist? I don't know. <laughs> um,
1: I. I mean, genuinely, honestly, I never really thought I'd become a child psychologist. It kind of happened over time. I wanted to be a medical doctor, but I didn't want to do surgery. I didn't want to. I wasn't. I mean, I'm not cut up. (laughs) It's not a pun, but I'm not cut up to cut up. And that's part of your medical training. So I didn't want to do that. But I knew that I want to work with children. So in my mind, I would have wanted to be like a paediatrician, which is really interesting because the people I work with now. Um, And I was just suggested by somebody in my school who was a biology teacher said to me, have you ever thought of this? Because I think you'd be really good at this. And we didn't do psychology in my school. So I had no idea what it was. And I kind of went with it. I just kind of thought, why not? Did it at undergrad and loved it. Um, I'd always worked with children like in a voluntary way like with children with learning disabilities actually when I was a teenager I just I've always really enjoyed it I find it very enriching experience a very kind of humbling experience it really opens your perspective on the world in a very different way those ideas around privilege and all of those ideas just already I, I think I was really kind of open to that just by working with children when I was also a child I guess I was a teenager so I was a kid and then it just went from there because part of your training is that you do lots of placements so as clinical psychologists we're trained to work across the lifespan and I loved working with children and then I loved working in a hospital which shouldn't have been a surprise to me given kind of where I wanted to be but I don't think I ever kind of married them together I never really it kind of happened I love I love stories I've always loved reading I've always loved thinking about stories we do live our lives in stories don't we and I think all those things kind of match up in psychology it's got the science bit it's got the kind of amazing privilege that I have of hearing family stories and supporting families towards their preferred futures or their goals or you know things that they feel are not possible for them lots of children talk about I can never do this and it's about kind of exactly you were saying like guiding them or supporting them towards the the quality of life that they want so yeah it's a bit of a strange
0: path I think I'd never met a psychologist before I became a psychologist (laughs) so you so you work with with children with life limiting or life shortening physical conditions i mean that must be quite harrowing at times and i wonder you know in your experience how you protect yourself but also how you're able to be sort of open enough to be there at this really sort of difficult time in their lives and and you know and be there for the parents as well, because parents suffering and watching their child going through these, these terrible things, you know, that's really hard for everybody. And so what's, what's been the sort of real tough things for you in, in that journey?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I wouldn't call it harrowing. I think it's beautiful. And I think That often throws people, but that's how I think about it. But there is real beauty in working with children and families who live a different life and may have life shortening, life limiting health conditions. Because I think you just, you just see the world in a very different way. And to me, that's a huge gift that like these families give me. Um, It's such a big privilege. The most kind of challenging things for me always, and it's probably not surprising, but it's often, it's often not what people think. So I work with children. I have worked with lots of children who have died. Um, It's just part of the work that I've done. Uh, The health conditions that they lived with mean that they, you know, were never going to get to their 18th birthday. And I think that's what most people will think is like, oh my god that's so difficult and it is but there's something very beautiful about supporting a child and a family to achieve a good death and there is such a thing as a good death and you know death and life for me are together like they are they are part of the same thing this is what we are experiencing day by day that is why I also feel like and I'm not like this every day, but it, there is something very incredible about waking up every day and seeing the sun and seeing the rain, you know, living, experiencing as hard as it is. There's something very rich in that. And that doesn't kind of pass me by. I'm very aware of it, probably because of the work that I do. You know, I don't take it for granted that I'm alive. I see it as like, you know, a huge privilege but obviously there are days where you get stuck in your little world and you know life is hard and you don't see all that beauty that's normal too because we're human and I'm human but there's something very beautiful about that but i think some of the most the, the most challenging things that for me with children and families are when families get really really stuck and they want to change but there's something outside of their control that stops them and for me, that's really difficult because it always comes down to, and psychology is a lot about this, it comes down to society, socioeconomic factors, privilege, oppression, all those things can really kind of play a dance, a rhythm to families' lives that makes some families be unable to have the same opportunities, the same you know, quality of life as somebody else. And psychology sometimes feels like just touching the surface because I can't really kind of pick them up and actually change the things that I need to change for these families. Because it it comes down to power, you know, society comes down to so many huge things at a much greater level than psychology. And I think as a psychologist, those are the things that are the hardest Uh, which is also why we play we play we work with other professionals and we try and kind of create networks of support around families so it's never it's never just me often working with families within these contexts I will recruit kind of professionals to support me but it's hard because some lots of families their starting point is not my starting point like in life I've had like 100 opportunities before they've even been invited into one so this changes everything and I think that's really difficult I don't think I'm on my own with this I think lots of clinical psychologists would say the same that this is the greatest challenge that we have in our work Um, which is at a greater kind of society level which I guess is why I'm on Instagram because some of the things I try and do are kind of reach more people because i do believe in the kind of trickle effect of little by little if we all become more knowledgeable if we all become more aware more curious then little by little maybe we can change the world together because i do believe in that you know i think it is about all of us in our own homes making tiny changes little steps forward That means that the next generation have better opportunities, more equal rights. So It goes back to the whole like equal rights, you know, racial equality, fairness with gender, with pay, with all of those things. I think it all starts with what we do at home and how we all kind of empower each other to keep going, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that, and I wonder, you know, when when families or people, you know, all of us are, are feeling stuck and and sort of constrained by those external forces that are sort of out with our control. What are the tools, and how do you help people take those tiny little steps in in the run of a day? What are the the sort of the little things that people can do to sort of feel like they're somehow gaining some kind of traction or or control in in uh, in often very sort of slippery what feels like slippery circumstances
1: yeah i think it's it's very unique to each person but it is about focusing on what you can control so there's so much and it can be overwhelming but it's about what's a little step that you can take forward And what's one way for you to take control of this particular situation? So, you know, I don't know if we're talking about kind of little boys and little girls. It might be, like I said, can you be curious about things? Can you just stop and open your child's mind and possibilities to the fact that their gender isn't like a binary and they can. Everything that's out in the world is for everyone, Can you open that up? Can you open those possibilities up? I think when it comes to things like race, I feel like it's really important to become anti-racist. And for me, this is a new thing. Like, you know, we used to talk about racist and non-racist, but that's not enough anymore. So again, I feel like there's an awakening. You know, there's something happening where it's like, we need to go a little bit further. We need to kind of that traction to move forward a little bit deeper. Um, and I think that's really important. So what can you do as a parent, whether, you know, you are a black family or a white family, what can you do? Because it is about kind of opening up the conversations around colour, for example, for little ones, like skin colour. Talk about it. There's so many families who find out, even just what I just said, a bit of a challenge. But it's not about cultural but it's not about like ethnicity it's about color like just open up the conversation because children have eyes and they're curious and they wonder you know talk about it talk about melanin talk about the fact that skin color is a biological thing but it we're all human it's just the same way that we have different hair color right but open up those conversations because those tiny little things that you do have control over I think really can have a huge impact. Again, it goes down to values and the kind of core values that your child then holds within themselves that they carry throughout the rest of their lives. And of course we change. That's the glorious thing about being human that you evolve and adapt and learn. We never stop learning. But if you can begin with your child like this, that means that when they're my age, they'll be so much further you know, because they've lived a life that's much more inclusive, diverse, you know, open than the way that I was brought up. I was brought up as, you're a little girl, and this is what you're supposed to do, if that makes sense. So I think that's, if they feel like tiny steps, but they're huge. Like when it comes down to the
0: learning that your child gets out of it. And in that way, we we get to change the future, don't we? And you know the symbol of this podcast is is a hand with um, "choose courage" on uh, written on it, and uh, and so I always ask my guests. You know, in 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 all of your experiences and the challenges that you've seen and experienced yourself, um, well, how do you define courage? So to me, courage is
1: about doing something that you're scared of and doing it anyway. And I think the most courageous thing for anyone adult child is just to get up every day and live your life as authentically and fully as you can because that really really does take courage every single day and by authentic I mean by trying to really be you so not wearing a mask you know and at the moment lots of people are wearing masks you know lockdown's been hard and people are still smiling and under their mask interestingly (laughs) people are wearing lots of masks but underneath so the authentic bit is about just being able to show your true self and know this is the bit that I think is what we've been talking about this whole time on this podcast today but it's about kind of knowing that you'll be accepted and that you are acceptable for who you are like who you are is good enough you don't need to kind of be anybody else but i think that acceptance comes from those little values that get trickled down so to me courage is being authentic every day and living your life fully even though it's really hard because often life
0: is hard thank you so much dr martha for showing us as a society we can all help raise our children to honor themselves and each other and create a world where we can all feel respected and safe. Thank
1: you for having me. Thank
0: you so much. Really appreciate your time. Take care. See you soon. Bye. Thanks, Dr. Martha, for your insights and for encouraging us in all our relationships to treat everyone with dignity, kindness, and respect. You can find out more about Dr. Martha's work on www.drmdc.co.uk and follow her on Instagram at drmdc.co.uk. Dot MDC underscore psychologist. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage, and see you next week.